the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. There are two temptations, at least, that we often fall into when it comes to looking at our current state of politics. On the one hand, we may be tempted to look back at some previous period and say, our political discourse was really good then, I wish we could go back. We romanticize the past and ignore the challenge and struggle and oversights that we've muddled through to get to the present. On the other hand, we may be tempted to look at our present state, our institutions and ideologies and political systems, and assume we've made nothing but progress. Things aren't perfect, but they're better than they were, we may say, and as a result, we assume we have nothing to learn from what's come before. I think, I hope, the vast majority of us fall somewhere in between, eager to keep improving our political processes so as to represent and include more and more voices, and also curious about what worked in the past, what we might have to learn from those who have gone before. If that sounds right, then this conversation is for you. Bill McCormick is a Jesuit and scholar of political science and philosophy. He's a frequent contributor to America Magazine and has written a new book called The Christian Structure of Politics. In it, Bill takes us way back in time to the political thought of Thomas Aquinas and his work, Deregno, which was a letter the saint wrote to a prince. Bill helps us think through what this obscure text written for a very different political system can say about our politics today. Now, here's Bill McCormick. Bill McCormick, welcome back to AMDG. Thanks, Eric. It's so good to be here. I know you did so well last time. We said, let's get this guy back on here. And this mm. time we're talking about um, similar topic, politics, right? Um, and, and our response as 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 people of faith, um, but a very specific lens. And you have a new book and we're going to talk about it in, in just a few moments. But first, I want to say congratulations. You were recently ordained to the diaconate. So tell us a little bit about that. How was that day? What, what, what are you thinking about now that you... Uh, you have all these holy orders uh, behind you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It was a, a wonderful, grace-filled day. As you know, Jesuits, we're very slow learners. So, you know, I've been in the society <laughs> since for nine years and getting ordained a deacon. It's a wonderful, you know, on the one hand, it's this special, intense moment of grace. And on the other hand, it's also this confirmation capstone of everything that's come before the way that God and my family and my friends and God's people have supported me. Uh, so yeah, just an incredible, incredible day. And especially to the extent that diaconate is a, it's a wonderful ministry of the word, as you know. And so it just feels like this incredible uh, integration with, with my vocation as a Jesuit. Of course, we have a great love of words, uh, ministerial <laughs> or otherwise. So incredible day, incredible day. Yeah, I think your your book is a real testament to your to your love of words. Um, but first, I, I, how are you going to spend your? So you have a year preparing for for priesthood. What um, will that look like for you? Because I know it can look it hold sorts of different ways for Jesuits. So tell us about what how you're going to live out this next year. That's right. That's right. I'll be deaconing at Our Lady of Lords Parish in Toronto, and I'm really excited. It's such a wonderful, dynamic, vibrant parish. It's a microcosm of the city of Toronto. Just people from all four corners of the earth. And uh, yeah, people who have experienced God's love for them in a thousand different ways. And so I'm looking forward to learning from them. I'm new. I'm a fresh face there. So everybody's been very kind and very welcoming and they're uh, excited to have me. So I look forward to uh, <laughs> not wearing out the welcome. They'll, they'll tell you what, you what they really think after a few, uh, few weeks go by, right? <laughs> this, this woman came up to me at the end of my first deacon mass there and she gave me a few points on exactly what the uh, thesis or the pearls of my homily was. And I told her, you have to come talk to me after every mass where I preach because you you are going to help me reverse engineer all of my future homilies. It was, <laughs> she was so attentive. She And she heard so many beautiful things that I don't think I said, but I'm glad that, you know, she heard the whisper of the Holy Spirit. That's all that that's all that matters. That's good. Well, let's see if I can play the role of that lady now as we dig into your <laughs> your text um, here. Uh, you know, so your, your new book is called The Christian Structure of Politics, 
on the Diregno of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and I will confess that I am no scholar of Thomas Aquinas, and I had never heard of this, uh, this the, the particular piece of writing that you focus on in this book, uh, the Diregno. Um, and, and when we were originally talking about your book and, and what a podcast might look like, um, you said that the theme should be uh, why Aquinas is really a Jesuit. And I was like, that's a really bold, exciting claim. So let's let's dig into that first. Let's start there. Um, and uh, and, and, and uh, tell us why Aquinas is really a Jesuit. <laughs> With apologies to our Dominican listeners, of course, who are, are wonderful <laughs> ministers of God. And of course, that comment was a bit tongue in cheek. But on the one hand, you know, Aquinas did have a tremendous influence on Catholic thinkers on politics, you know, subsequent to himself, including great Jesuits like uh, Cardinal Bellarmine or Francisco Suarez. But I think what's interesting, too, about this text of Aquinas, one thing it reveals about Aquinas is that Aquinas has a great love of knowledge for its own sake, because knowledge tells us something about how God made reality, how sort of shines through his providence and goodness and care. Uh, but there's also a kind of awareness in this text that you know, that knowledge can serve practical purposes and that we can read the, the quote unquote signs of the times and, and really bring to bear our God given intellectual gifts to ask, what are what is this moment calling of us? You know, what are we being asked to do in this place and time? And it's funny because at different points in history, Jesuits have been accused of a certain we'll call it intellectual pragmatism, you know, sort of mm -hmm. willing to adopt whatever concepts or whatever theories are helpful in the moment. Uh, of course, a lot of those criticisms are unfair. I'm not here to argue about that, though. But it, it's it's clear that Aquinas in this text, he's thought a lot about uh, what it means for people to live in community in 13th century Europe. And I think in that respect, there's something beautiful, uh, a beautiful example of finding God in all things and really seeking out the graces that are often hidden in our resistance to his grace. So what else, um, before we, we dive in, what else should listeners know about Thomas Aquinas just as, as a figure in our church's history? Um, and then specifically, what should readers know about um, kind of contextualizing Deregno um, in a you know, certain time and place and, and thought for, for Aquinas in particular? I think what often gets ignored or f forgotten about Aquinas is he was a bit of a rebel. You know, he came from a wealthy, noble family in uh, Italy near Naples, and they had big plans for him. He was going to be an abbot of a wealthy monastery. You know, he was going to be a leading prince of the church. And he decided to join the fledgling order of the Dominicans, you know, and he decided to opt against sort of the safe and reliable and, and take a chance on a really daring vocation to follow what God asked him to do. And it sounds a bit, you know, his vocation story is a bit like St. Ignatius. His family was deeply resistant to him uh, embarking on this path. You know, they locked him in the castle. They tried to keep him from joining. Uh, eventually, they gave in and let him, let him join. And then once he joined, you know, he flourished. He became uh, the Thomas Aquinas God wanted him to be. He was a priest. He was a theologian. He uh, led govern had governance roles within the Dominicans. He was in Rome. He was in Cologne. He was in Paris. You know, he was all over uh, Western and Central Europe, working, uh, doing great service to the Dominican Order and to the Church uh, everywhere he went. And he's sort of most well known for, you know, for finding a way to integrate uh, Greek philosophy, especially that of Aristotle. Uh, with Christian theology and finding a way to kind of give a philosophical foundation to theology. And in that respect, he was part of a much wider movement to show how, quote, Athens and Jerusalem fit together. But I think his most beautiful works, and unfortunately they're, they're neglected, are his scriptural commentaries, because mm -hmm. his scriptural commentaries show that he's a man deeply in love with God, deeply immersed in scripture. And he that's really what drives him. You know, that really is what motivates him is the desire for that, that unit union with God and wanting other people to share in it. Um, yeah. So there, he's a fun guy. There are a lot of aspects of his, of his life biography that get kind of downplayed in, in terms of this specific text. It's uh, if you've heard of Machiavelli's the Prince, 
-hmm. It's worth noting that Dorenio is that same genre. So it's a letter or a series of advice, uh, advice counsels to a prince. And of course, Aquinas and Machiavelli don't have much else in common besides that. <laughs> but it's true that Aquinas wrote this text uh, ostensibly uh, for a, uh, a French lord who had occupied Cyprus as part of the, as part of the Holy Wars uh, that, of course, raged throughout a lot of the medieval period. And we think the idea was that he was writing this to kind of curry favor with the king so that the Dominicans could establish a presence on Cyprus as kind of a launching pad uh, for their activities in the Holy Land. So, you know, you're talking about a text that's deeply embedded in the history, uh, the geography, the politics of the moment. And indeed, that's the first thing you notice about this text. It's not an abstract treatise. It, it is suffused uh, yeah, with the politics of the day and an awareness that the European crusaders are have and any any political rulers have to make a lot of pretty fundamental decisions about whether their governance is going to be just or not. Right. Uh, which, of course, Machiavelli also raises that question, but much more subtly to suggest, well, you definitely want to appear to be just, but it's usually better not to be, uh, <laughs> in fact. Right. Well, you know, and I think just the very nature. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me the very nature of this. Um, this project of Aquinas, right, writing this this letter to uh, to this this prince, um, shows the necessary connection between church and state, between faith and and public life, right? That these things need to come together in a in a meaningful way, even if it is as you said, kind of you know, currying favor or trying to you know uh, influence one side or the other, um, which ultimately plays a big role, I think, in why why you are, are writing and reflecting on this. Is that right? Is that is that one of the things that really interested you about this particular text? Oh, absolutely. The church-state question, however you explain it, is really uh, integral to this text. And also Aquinas is so cryptic mm. about that question. Uh, he wants to give us some important fundamental assumptions for thinking about the relationship between politics and religion, uh, but he never really puts it on a plate. And in fact, most of his successors through 17th, 18th century, they carve up his legacy on this question and they take part of it. Um, and leave behind other parts. So, you know, a lot of Western history since the 13th century is arguing over the different parts of Aquinas' legacy. Um, right. It's really clear for Aquinas that, and one of the ways that really shines through in this book is Aquinas tells the king, look, politics is very difficult. It's very hard. It's not easy. And so any attempt to, for instance, sort of grab, you know, cloak yourself in the mantle of religion is not going to be a good solution to the problem of legitimizing your your regime. Um, and you think that you maybe you think you can control the church and that will make uh, governing the country easier. Guess what? Governance is still very, very difficult. And uh, I think that's one of the central lessons, honestly, of this text, because I think in politics of today in most eras, we assume that politics is hard because we are not in charge and our enemies are holding us back. You know, enemies construed mm. broadly. But Aquinas says, no, politics is very hard, very slow, often boring. And uh, you can't, you know, you can't uh, let up on it. You have to keep working on it every day. And so, so often yeah. the church-state battles really obscure the ways in which, no, politics is this daily activity. It's a ministry. Yeah. Well, so um, so let's 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 kind of pick up on that idea. One of the themes I think you come back to again and again in your own reflection on this text um, is that Aquinas considers the human person naturally political, right? It's something inherent to um, who we are, how we relate to one another. So, what did that re realization mean for Aquinas uh, and in his time, in particular? Uh, and then, what does it mean for how we interact in society today? Do you think, like, how what what should we be pulling from these lessons from so long ago, written in a very different political system? No, that's a great question. You know, when we say that human beings are naturally political, we don't mean that we're kind of born fully ready for politics, right? It doesn't mean <laughs> automatically. Uh, it's a classic cliche example, but you know, an acorn, it's natural for an acorn to grow into a tree, but it needs water, it needs healthy soil, it needs air and nutrients, and it needs to be protected from things that would destroy it. Uh, and in that same way, you know, what it means to be naturally political is that society has to be has to cultivate the gifts each person has to be naturally political and to live together with other people. Um, 
you know, and to some extent for Aquinas's time, it was a way of thinking about how all of the virtue talk of ancient uh, Rome and Greece, that that really did concord with the gospel. You know, that the challenge of living up to divine law, for instance, or human law, it really does, it really can be understood in terms of these virtues, that we have to be just, we have to be courageous and prudent and moderate, and we have to build that up over time. Again, it's slow work, you know, it can be pretty boring. Uh, it's a lot like having to train for a marathon. Most of us would like to be able to run a marathon tomorrow because we had the thought today. Uh, but it's very slow work. Uh, <laughs> one of many reasons I will never run a marathon. Um, and so I think for our time, you know, I think I think this question is so profound because we are very aware in the 21st century that most of our experiences of living in community as countries, as political societies, it's not going really well. And to take the famous example, you know, the famous phrase, we are bowling alone. We feel very isolated and fragmented. And we feel that like there are a lot of barriers between us and other people. So in, in some sense, Aquinas is asking us to take a step back and say, if we are made to live together, if we if politics is supposed to help us be better, more complete, more fully who we are, what do we need to do to get there? Yeah. Um, and I think to some extent, I do think part of the answer is we have to grow where we're planted uh, and we have to look for opportunities to uh, to live in community with other people. And recognizing a lot of this is practical. You know, we can write a lot of books about what it means to be political. And I, I plan to do that. <laughs> God and my superiors willing. But, you know, should, it's, should it's I just book you out for the next like couple of months on on, the, on the podcast? Just, yeah, uh, yeah. Every, the recurring every... Bill McCormick political <laughs> section. That's right. <laughs> It'll get a little repetitive, and no one no one will mind about that less than I will. <laughs> uh, but you know, there, it's it's like playing a sport. Uh, you have you only really learn it by doing it. Uh, and so I think that's one of the challenges for our time is you know finding opportunities uh, where we can meaningfully engage with other people. And I think as Catholics, of course. Uh, many people listening to this are Catholics. We we are aware that this has entered deeply into our own church. Like a lot of people are asking, what happened to the parish? Hmm. Which is an astonishing problem that the parish, for so many people, is not a place of community. Uh, you know, I don't want to be melodramatic. Of course, people find friends there. They, they find the sacraments. It's very good. But it's not a problem that from which anyone is immune. You know, Bill, one of the things that you um, kind of on this on the same point, uh, you, you spent some time, Aquinas spent some time, right, talking about the various ends for which uh, people are made and that and that, um, you know, the role of in this case, the king um, should be focused on bringing people to a certain point in their life so that they are able to, to flourish. Um, right. How how would you describe that? Um, or, or is that what you've been just kind of is it, discussing now this idea of community and, and building but what, what are some of those more particular ways in which we can um, look for full human flourishing um, in, in places where so often we feel isolated and fragmented and and polarized as you as you already noted no it's a great question you know I, I think in some ways it's a powerful question to return to the problem of virtue and to ask does our political life allow us each to develop in those virtues? Um, is the citizenship look like a kind of friendship uh, mm. where the ways that some benefit also allows others to benefit, right? It's just not for a certain group of people. Um, there's, a, there's a real confidence and trust in Aquinas's work, and I think in lots of Catholic thinkers over time, that, you know, uh, cultivating our capacities as good human beings is and citizens of this world really can cultivate uh, our openness to grace. Um, and so sometimes, you know, you, you, there's a way in which you can kind of pursue that from t in, from both directions or you know, either direction. Uh, but I think that for Aquinas, if a society is moving toward a notion of justice and peace and civic friendship that is genuinely open, to what makes people fully human, then that is a fantastic, excellent start. Um, and in some ways, it sounds like a very low bar. You know, he's not pushing for a radical theocracy. 
whatever theocracy means. Uh, what, <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, on the other hand, you know, we look around the world today and we see, well, there are plenty of political societies where peace and justice are very far removed from what people experience. Yeah. Um, that, that term civic friendship, I think, is a helpful one for all of us to, to reflect on. Um, I think so. So one of the things that really struck me as a modern reader, and I imagine would strike everyone, um, is the uh, is the priority that uh, Aquinas places on monarchy. Uh, and he says, right, that uh, monarchy is the best form of government, um, which which I found again very striking. But as I read the the text, I was like, wow, this is you know you're an interesting an interesting argument. So so tell us why Aquinas um, really stakes his claim on monarchy. Um, you know, I think there's, there's various levels. So, so let's let's hear your your reflections there. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to start if I could with your sort of initial surprise. I think that's really important. You know, since I don't know World War II or so, democracy is the you know the only the one legitimate form of government right. in the world today, and a lot of countries spend a lot of time pretending they're democracies even when they're not. Uh, for much of world history monarchy had that role and a very unquestioned unchallenged ideology proclaimed monarchy as the greatest form of government um and there are a lot of reasons for it there are metaphysical reasons philosophical and historical you know there's often claims made including by aquinas that monarchy sort of reflects nature best uh reflects how god created the world you know there's one god in heaven and one king on earth uh, you know, you look at animals and they have monarchs. You look at the human body. Aquinas says the heart governs the body, hmm. uh, which obviously you could debate whether that's true or not. I think it's the <laughs> thyroid gland. Um, <laughs> but there's this notion behind all of that. There's this idea that what's most integral to political life is unity and peace. And he talks about the unity of peace quite a bit in this work. And so ultimately what monarchy is sort of mirrors is the state of the ideal society um, that we have to be united and we have to be at peace. Um, and maybe we don't have to be united uh, purely numerically. Like maybe you think you could have a triumvirate or something, but they have to, the rulers have to get along. Uh, in, in much of the world today, certainly the U.S. Constitution is predicated on something different that no, it's good to break up the powers, you know, the separation of powers. It's good for the different branches of government to be jealous of each other. Um, and that would be a different conversation how well that has gone. Um, but monarchy does allow Aquinas to talk about the importance of unity and peace in society. And, you know, he's also dealing with a readership that assumes monarchy is the best. And so he's happy not to resist that point too much, except that he does say that there are other acceptable forms of government. And he does say that whatever the philosophical, theological excellence of monarchy, as a matter of fact, monarchy routinely descends into tyranny. And I think that's probably one of the most important lessons we can take from this book is as much as we love democracy, you know, we've been very aware since the 90s, that the fall of the Soviet Union did not lead to the perfection of Western democratic capitalism. And so, you know, what do we do with that dissatisfaction? What do we do with our awareness of the limitations of democracy? And uh, obviously, there are people, there are louder voices in the public forum trying to push for some kind of alternative to liberal democracy. And uh, you know, do we have a knee-jerk reaction to those response to those sorts of proposals, or do we have an intelligent engagement where we say, "Well, I'm still committed to X or Y, but you're making me think and you're challenging me in a way." And again, it goes back to the problem of ideology. If you have a unchallenged, unexamined view that no X is the best, end of story, uh, that's not great for political life because politics is not geometry, right? It's right. quite practical. It's quite practical. We have to question our principles all the time. Yeah. You, you make me think of um, well, a number of things uh, kind of on this, this discussion. Um, again, going back to the idea of civic friendship um, and the and to, to me, at least, you know, with not a, an informal definition, I'm thinking about um you know, any sort of friendship necessitates uh, a concern for another, a, a real person, as opposed to a um, ideological, uh, you know, uh, 
purity, right? How can I help a person versus how can I advance a particular ideology? Um, that's one thing I'm thinking of. And the other thing I'm thinking of, you know, you said, this will be kind of a, now this will be the question, but um, in, in the person of the king, you've, you've stated, right, that there's this, represents this idea of unity, of, of oneness. Um, and, and we've talked about the importance of, of forming the person of the king with virtue uh, and, and, you know, the concern for justice. Um, I also, uh, you know, I think that that translates easily into our, our, current day? How are we forming our political leaders now? Um, but one thing that, I, that does concern me is this this, this desire for unity sometimes uh, glosses over important distinctions, right? Important uh, needs of different groups, that, that civic friendship, that, that kind of looking eye to eye might detect. Um, how, how do you reconcile these ideas of, of a desire for unity and, and kind of um, moving forward together without losing those distinction, uh, different, different needs of different groups, um, that could get squashed, uh, if, if unity is the highest, highest, uh, good. Oh, no, that's a critical question for justice is how to treat people who are similar in similar ways and those who are different, you know, in different ways, according to their needs and desires. And I think that, you know, that's a way in which unity always has to be linked to questions of justice and truth, because as you say, to flatten over meaningful distinctions is not helpful. And, you know, I think those are questions that concern us more than they concern Aquinas. You know, I don't think that's uh, uncontroversial. In a society like ours, where we value freedoms of speech and opinion and assembly, those things are going to become even more important. You know, we value those sort of 19th century ideals of being able to disagree for the sake of disagreement, even if you think someone is really wrong. And uh, as long as, you know, they're not hurting anybody. And so we we want to make more space for that kind of uh, disunity, you know, for that kind of disagreement. So again, I think this is a, a point where Aquinas is challenging us. Um, we are so used to living in a society where we agree on almost nothing and politics is very instrumental. You know, we're all going to use it to pursue our own goods. Uh, but what do we really need? You know, what kind of common consensus do we need to make sure that we're a flourishing society? And societies change. You know, I um, societies change in what they value and what they think is important. And they're, I don't know how you you measure, you know, how we, you check that barometer. But I think, for instance, in the 21st century, you know, the United States is much more united around a concern for truth. You know, we've gone through many periods of relativism around truth and very skeptical that anybody has it. But it, it's quite clear that for various reasons, you know, quote unquote, all sides can, are concerned about truth and its relationship to politics. We should take that seriously um, and we should see where it leads us as a people, Um because again, politics is something that develops over time, and de we develop through it over time. That's interesting that our uh, our concern for truth is is most manifested in people having claiming very different realities and different you know you know quote unquote fake news and and different kinds of truths, right? So I, uh, you know, it's I I wonder actually if this kind of gets into my next question, where where you've said like the monarchy, the quote unquote best form of government. Um, also represents the worst, uh, most dangerous form of government, right? Which is tyranny, the flip side, right? So I wonder if that kind of the, the ultimate truth can 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 be, you know, easily perverted into fake, you know, fake news and 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 a lack of trust in in all all sides. Um, but talk about maybe maybe these things go together. Talk about how um, monarchy becomes tyranny, uh, and and how does that again? I think this is relevant for our time because I think we can think of uh, various leaders, you know, of of all sorts and all places that. Um, you know, we're really excited about and then perhaps, you know, fall from that virtuous place we, we hope for. Yes, it's striking in this work that for Aquinas, it seems like the best form of government monarchy, you know, the uncontested mm -hmm. ideological victor of the time uh, is quite liable. You know, it's always on sort of the razor's edge uh, and can lapse into tyranny quite easily. And so, of course, the relevant difference here is, is that monarchy is rule of one person for the common good and tyranny is the rule of one person for the a private good, for his own private good. And one of Aquinas's biggest points in this book is that tyranny, you know, tyrants think uh, that they are ruling for their own benefit and they are going to hurt their country to help themselves. And he wants to emphasize that's not the case at all, that tyranny is worse for nobody more than the tyrant. You know, like they usually meet very bad ends. They corrupt their souls. 
Um, so it's, you know, there's kind of an argument there uh, that that even the putative benefits of tyranny for the tyrant don't don't really exist. Um, it's also a, to get back to the question of ideology. I mean, there's just this assumption uh, in that he's trying to push back against that if we follow the basic norms of monarchy, government will be just. Uh, and he wants to question that. You know, he says there there are these external standards. Are humans flourishing? Are they becoming um, fully human? Uh, and that's a debate we're having in the 21st century is what is the status of demo liberal democratic norms? You know, if we follow those norms, are we going to le lead to a healthy regime? And I think we've seen in a lot of ways how that's not true. And in some cases, it's simply because we're blind to reality, like, for instance, racial justice. Um, you know, it'd be very easy to pretend that liberal democracy has been good for people. Uh, when it actually has often been quite bad um, for particular groups of people who have been excluded and marginalized. And, and Pope Francis, of course, is very good on this. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, part of what Aquinas worries about is that we think, uh, you know, because of our ideological predilections, we think we have the recipe uh, for good politics. We think we know the formula for justice. And so we become quite complacent and quite lazy about it. And then when we see evidence of injustice, when people who have been victimized by injustice come before us, we can become quite resistant to hearing them out. We can become quite blind, willfully blind to seeing where injustice is. And um, yeah, I come back to that point over and over again in the book that there is no, there are no quick fixes. There are no recipes. Um and it's funny, I mean, I'll, I'll stop after this, I promise, but there's a surprising lack of interest in institutions in this book, you know, and there's a, I think there's an idea in a lot of modern politics that if we get the institutions right, you know, if we figure out how to deal with philo the filibuster better or the relationship institutionally between Congress and the presidency or whatever, um, and, or, you know, in Aquinas' time, if we get the church-state question right, uh, that, yeah, that then we have this kind of royal path to justice. And Aquinas does not buy that. You know, he is interested in all the different ways politics can go right and all the different ways politics can go wrong. And, and fundamentally, it's a question of happiness, not just institutional uh, turf wars. Yeah, it gets back to, again, that, that civic friendship, the, the virtue, right? And um, uh, and again, that, that the hard path to unity, I imagine, of, of carving out a a common destiny as opposed to just saying, oh, no, we're all equal. We're all good. Everything's fine. And and kind of glossing over, as you said, those places where we're often willfully uh, and uh, ignorant and resistant. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, you have a large section and so does Aquinas um, uh, about the reward for the king. And I wonder, um, kind of talk about what that is. And, and do you think it's enough uh, to really keep the social order on track? The reward of the king is a really fun section of this book. Because Aquinas recognizes that a lot of political rulers, I mean, they're interested in profiting somehow from their rule, that they want glory, they want honor, they want riches. And he comes from a long line of classical thinkers who say, and he relies quite a bit on uh, the Roman thinker Cicero here, that none of those things are very satisfactory. And the biggest problem, of, of course, is they're transient. You know, they're transitory. They don't last. And so... There's a way in which politics, if you're, you know, if you're leading uh, a political life to gain those kinds of things, it's always unstable. It's always about to fall apart. Um, and that's one of the real uh, sort of where you see the cash value, as it were, of monarchy lapsing into tyranny. It's all of a sudden you've lose, lost all these things. So what, but what Aquinas wants to do is he doesn't just criticize those kinds of ends uh, the reward. He also shows the king that his real reward is the same reward of any and all of his citizens. You know, that it is about the common good. It is about peace and justice and, and politics ultimately helping people uh, to be good citizens and good Christians. And so the, the point of political rule isn't extrinsic to politics. It's intrinsic to it. And if the king's citizens, or in this case, subjects, aren't benefiting from politics, his political role, then the king isn't either. Um, 
So I think it's really, really, it's subversive in a really, in a really fun way. Uh, you can agree, disagree if you want, but, <laughs> but to, to your other point, no, it's true. I mean, a king, uh, good rulers have to be motivated by the very highest concerns. And even the best rulers can meet really bad fates because of bad luck, because of things going wrong. Um, and so Aquinas, like Augustine before him, w- will say that rulers, much like any human being, they have to do the best they can in this life. And maybe things don't work out in a lot of ways. But if they, you know, if they're genuinely seeking uh, the good of others through politics, that, you know, they can still go to heaven. You know, it doesn't mean they won't get there. Uh, and that's that's a big theme of this book, that the, uh, the tyrant and all kinds of political rulers, they think they control the world. You know, they, there's a really false sense of mastery and of control. And Aquinas over and over again says, no, that's not true because you did not create anything in the world. God did. And you did not set its end. You know, you did not say this is the purpose of politics. God did that, too. So what, polit- what political rulers have to do is be ministers or stewards like every person with the gifts God gives them. And, yeah, sometimes... Uh, things go awry. And yeah, it's just, it's really fascinating because I think for 21st century politics, I mean, I won't name any names, but we have plenty of leaders on all sides who present an image of, you know, omnipotence and omniscience and control and mastery and authority. Um, And even over environment, right? That that we think we can manipulate the environment without any uh, creation, without consequences. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I think I'm, uh, I'm really struck by, and you, you make this point a lot in the book too about how Aquinas starts by praising the king and oh how good monarchy is, and then as you said, really subverts expectations throughout, and really I think paints a picture of, um, you know, your, your quote unquote servant leader, right? Your, your, as you said, it's, a, it's a ministry, you know, it's really, you know, putting the service in public service kind of thing as, as, as it goes, like this is for other people, this isn't for your own glory and power, um, which. Uh, you know, as you as you said, like you know, what was this was text written for originally? Was it to curry favor? How much favor are you currying when you're saying there's really nothing, nothing that you're going to get as a king that that you shouldn't also get as a citizen? You know, it's um, it is a really interesting uh and, and wonderful kind of delightful way of thinking about again how we order society and and again I, you make this point in the book. Um, you know, the king is reminded that that uh, you know they are not creating their 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 role is to kind of order society in a way that points towards human flourishing um but but they aren't the um you know they didn't they didn't start the whole the whole game here so um i do want to spend a little bit of time on um on democracy because i was really fascinated um obviously this is a different time and place uh that aquinas is writing in but i was fascinated by aquinas essentially saying democracy is the best of the worst systems um in that because it's so disunified um it can stimmy uh, a tyrant who who would otherwise just lead um you know the charge to to his own glory, whereas democratic systems in theory are going to um, stifle that because they're so um, fragmented. Uh, what else What else should we know about Aquinas' thinking on democracy? And um, and was he right? Is that is that kind of what we're living with today? It uh, Aquinas reminds me of Winston Churchill's great line. You, you probably know that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, democracy has this fascinating role in history because on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of scorn and derision for it. On the other hand, it, it never goes away as a possibility. And and thinkers like Aquinas, they do think that the role, the participation of the people in politics in some shape or form is very important. And that's a neglected aspect of, of medieval politics that popular consent does matter. Um, now, certainly for somebody like Aquinas, you know, the problem with democracy is when it becomes something like you know, quote unquote, mob rule. And somebody like Plato is going to be even harsher in his criticism of it. Um, but he, yeah, he does think, he does think that popular consent matters to le- the legitimacy of the government. And he does think that uh, the sort of health and uh, success the, of the people, that their flourishing does matter. That if, if he is elitist about this, it's not the kind of elitism that says the ruler should rule for their own sake. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the most interesting parts of the of the work is when he suggests that as a last resort, 
if a tyrant uh, really is horrible, then the people can always pray to God uh, for his conversion and for their own conversion and suggesting that tyrants can sometimes emerge from a tyrannical culture. Um, that where did this tyrant come from in the first place? Um, but I think the, the hub or the nub of the problem, which Catholic thinkers thought about a lot in the 20th century, is what is the connection between democracy and truth and justice? And if democracy means majoritarian rule that, you know, tyrannizes minorities, that's bad. Um, if democracy means enshrining really false notions of the human person and of politics that hurt people, that's bad. Um, if democracy means living out the collective wisdom of the people, if, if it means seeking out what's truly just for all persons, that's very, very good. And democracy has the potential uh, to care about the victim and the poor and the marginalized in a way that other regime forms don't. That's uh, not exactly Aquinas' concern. I think that's very safe to say that as 21st century readers who are a good deal more sympathetic to democracy than Aquinas, it's, it's good for us to listen to his criticisms. You know, we don't have to become converts to uh, monarchy, <laughs> although, you know, that there's always Twitter for that sort of thing. Uh, although, you know, again, like, you know, the U.S. system is, is quite monarchical in the preponderance of power in the U.S. presidency. I mean, there's no question. Uh, and that's a good question for us to ask uh, about U.S. politics is given that it's this mixed regime, democratic and aristocratic and uh, monarchical elements, what works well and what doesn't and, and what can we do about that? Um, yeah. But I, I think uh, it's, you know, one thing that Aquinas and a lot of democratic advocates have in common is that the political rule should benefit everyone and should bring about the flourishing of everyone. And if it doesn't, then that's a matter of justice. You know, it is an injustice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I certainly we've seen throughout time uh, and, and the role of, of the church in, in various capacities um, when when the monarchy, when, when a certain regime doesn't accomplish justice, the various ways in which that regime is uh, is removed, reformed, uh, overthrown, what what, ha what have you. Um, I mean, I think we can all think of various, you know, various examples. Um you know, from from you know prayer to all the way to to armed revolution. I think that's uh, you know uh, whole sort whole sorts of other political questions, right? Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the church and state relationship because this is kind of what you're building towards in your book. Um, and one thing that's really so so let's talk about that. But let's also talk about um, one thing that, that I'm thinking about that's different in our time, or, or perhaps more in our own mindset in our time, is that the the ruler you know, the, the, the monarch, the leader, the president, whatever, um, is caring about his or her, um, you know, nation state. But we live now in an, um, you know, such a uh, interconnected world uh, that that's, you know, the common good, justice, those questions necessarily spill over into other other states and nations, right? Um, in ways that I, I, I wouldn't think would have been as, as pressing for Aquinas and, and certainly the monarchy of his time. And I think the church plays an interesting role in that today. So I, I leave those kind of um, reflections uh, for your for your consideration as, as you kind of lead us through to the end here with uh, with church and state and Aquinas. Well, you know, it's interesting that some many medieval thinkers like Aquinas had a fairly capacious view of what we would call kind of international relations because they they were they aspired to a notion of a united Europe or, mm. you know, maybe a united Mediterranean would be more accurate. Um, they were aware that there was something beyond the provinces and and budding nation states of Europe. And and it got expressed in pretty unsatisfactory ways. You know, the Holy Roman Empire was not everyone's emperor, you know, um, and, and it was obviously subject to dynastic politics. The The papacy was developing, uh, so it took it was not always a perfect expression of, of Christian unity. But there is this desire for unity uh, that that I think we can identify and with and recognize. Um, but no, there's no question uh, that for Aquinas, you know, again, like the, the hard work of politics means that church and state issues aren't supposed to give, there are no instant recipes for how church and state are supposed to relate. And there's no quick solution to how that problem, the resolution of it will fix politics. And, I, you know, that's a minor point, but I, I emphasize that because I think a lot of 
scholars of medieval thought think if we can just get the church state question right, and that's what these people were, of course, trying to do, uh, then we got a solution. But that, that, that isn't true. I mean, I think that the basic issue is Aquinas thinks that we were all created to be happy and happiness sends us down these same roads over and over again that we want to survive. You know, we want to preserve ourselves. We want to have families. We naturally desire to live in community with other people and we want to know the truth. You know, we want to lead and organize our life around our understanding of, of the way the world is and it's how its creator is. And so he is not, you know, he's not so naive as to think that every society has all those questions figured out, much less that they agree on them. He has a great history in the middle of the book about how societies have kind of approached this question. Uh, but he does think those are questions we can't ignore. Um, and, and he does think we have to keep asking, what are the truths upon which our society is based? And, you know, to take one example, obviously in the 20th century, the notion of human dignity, uh, often expressed in terms of rights, really came to the fore after World War II. And in a way, it had been a long time coming since, you know, it was to some extent based on stuff coming out of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. But after World War II, it, it, you know, there was a new impetus around building Europe. Uh, rebuilding Europe on peace and justice. And a lot of Catholics were involved in that sort of human rights project, that uh, foundation of dignity, that they, were, they weren't they were enlightenment thinkers and they were looking for something more substantial than just enlightenment rationality. And it was a beautiful thing and it had some successes. And now I think we can say that they're, you know, we're living in a different time. 2022 is not 19, the 1950s. And we have to keep asking, what is it? that unites our world, our society, and recognizing this is where Aquinas is so good, is that as our sort of concentric, cir concentric circles of justice and charity get bigger and grow out, you know, it becomes harder for people to recognize the way that they're connected to people beyond their immediate environment, their immediate context. And that's really tough. You know, when we talk about solidarity, uh, as Pope John Paul II often did, what does solidarity look like with people you know, I live in, you know, I live in Texas and somebody else lives in North Dakota. What does solidarity mean between us or someone between the, you know, between the U.S. and and Bangladesh or something like that? You know, we live in a world that we're once very aware of our interconnectedness, but there's still tremendous differences and distances. Um, and so I think having sober conversations reflecting on that is a continuing task. Yeah, I, I actually find a lot of consolation in, in your description here because, um, it, you know, it's it's reminding us that we we we, could, we should still be grappling with these questions. That that it's not like we had it right at one point and we've fallen so far and we have to kind of go hope hope that we can go back in time. Um, and it's also not saying that we haven't had good things in the past that we should learn from and 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 carry through it. And obviously, certainly, this text from Aquinas is, is one example. Um, and so I think it really. Um, for as as difficult as these conversations are, and as 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 dire as so much of this this looks right now, as we look out at the world, you know, in our country and around the world, um, I think we can all find a little bit of consolation and encouragement in saying, um, you know, these are still questions that uh, big questions that require big answers, and and let's take the good from the past and kind of keep grappling. And to that end, I want to ask kind of one last question here. Um, in your epilogue, you, uh, you made me chuckle because you have this whole wonderful book on, on this particular text of Aquinas's, and then you kind of say like, yeah, but is it that useful? I don't know. Um, but, but you say then um, that, the, that the thing that we can really take from it is this um, idea of a, of a, a spirituality of political engagement, right? Uh, and, um, and this idea that it helps us to live in the tension, as you've been describing. Um, so, so any kind of final words of, of wisdom kind of pulled from all that we've talked about um, uh, in both in your book and, and in this conversation today that you might leave people with as, as, uh, as they look out at this political landscape um, with varying degrees of hope? Well, hope is such a good word. I mean, it's such an important word because when I when I wrote about a politics, a, excuse me, a, a spirituality of politics, I was thinking very much of the question about how to live in hope. And part of what it means to live in hope is not to try to rush the process faster mm. than it needs to go and to acknowledge there are certain tensions that are hard to resolve. 
And some of those we've talked about, uh, but there are very basic moral tensions that we want to do what is right and we want to do what is just, and we have to keep learning about what that means and growing toward it. For Christians, there's an eschatological tension that, you know, we are building the kingdom of God now, uh, but we certainly don't pretend that we're going to do all of that by ourselves right now. Um, and as you said, there are so many forms, as you mentioned, a few different ways. There are all sorts of forms of disunity in the world that we really aren't united with our brothers and sisters, often in the most basic, at the most basic levels. There are so many people in the world today who have, uh, don't have enough food to eat. I mean, that's, I don't know if there's a bigger scandal. Uh, but to live in hope, to live in hope is to be able to somehow, is to be able to have a, a spirituality of political engagement that accepts God as Lord of history, and he's giving us the gifts and graces we need to do his work, to cooperate with him, and not to remake politics or the world in our own image, uh, but rather to accept the the slow, steady hand of God as, as uh, yeah, the foundation, the creation of all of history. Uh, I, as an academic, I have to continually remind myself that so many of the problems of our society are practical, not theoretical. I, you know, I think that most of what's quote unquote wrong about our world is not that nobody's reading, you know, all of my political science articles about the brilliant wisdom, <laughs> although, you know, I wouldn't mind if they did. That is the, that is the foundational sin of all of our uh, society. <laughs> oh, for sure. But, uh, you know, it's... it's it's about forgetting a really basic or really fundamental principles. Like we are made for each other. We are made for each other and everybody can say that and agree with it. But if we don't take it to heart and live it out, then uh, that doesn't do anybody good, any good that we have 10 million books about it. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, and this is where my confrere Patty Goger is so good. Cause he looks, he's looked at religious communities where Hey, they've really shaped at fundamental levels, uh, places, communities that are schools of what it means to be a good, flourishing human. And those practical uh, projects, experiments are just as important as the theoretical speculation. Uh, of course, of course, buy my book. Buy one for all of your friends. <laughs> all uh, your friends. So, Bill, if they wanted to buy your book, where, where would they do that? What's, uh, give, us the, uh, give us the information. Yeah, so the Christian structure of politics, a uh, wonderful phrase from John Courtney Murray. It can be found at uh, Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, if you're in Canada with me, uh, this Catholic University of America Press website, uh, and I'm sure a lot of other places too, but those are the obvious places. And of course, people can find your writing over at America Magazine. That's right. That's right. Bill McCormick, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you'll come back. Thanks, Eric. It was a great pleasure. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., and occasionally in my basement. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocations promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>